there is no one who knows me, or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. They know they're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me. How long have you been two different people? <laughs> long time. 14 years. Sherry, and this is Outline of a Murder, the smart true crime podcast. I'm Elena. And I'm Mom. Okay, so I can't use the term, I'm saving the best for last because he's obviously the worst for last, uh, Israel Keys. And we're about to go into probably the most evil and dark and meticulous and scary serial killer there is uh, so far. You know, you've got Ted Bundy. He wasn't as scary to me because he made mistakes. You have uh, Sam Little. He went a long time. He was bad. But this guy, I think the reason he is the scariest to me is how intelligent he was and how he did his crimes and how meticulous he was. And it's Israel Israel Keys. And um, very methodical. And, you know, I mean... When I think about all the true crime I've studied since 16, you know, it that says a lot. So if we look at the season, we've always had, you know, crimes and criminals where we can say, okay, this person became a victim possibly because of their trusting nature, or we could have, you know, pointers of look for red flags. There was nothing here with him. There was nothing that would have stopped him from killing you. Oh, that's comforting. Yeah. So, um, uh, and that's what makes him so scary. And uh, so I want to start off um, with his crime. And this right here is the young victim that began to unravel. So one thing that about Israel Keys that is with every criminal is they start to, and I think the technical term is devolve. You know, it's like they can go for a while killing, but then they start devolving, meaning they can't hide who they are anymore. They, uh, it's almost like they have to kill more and they get sloppy, I, maybe mm-hmm. like a drug addiction, you know. And so he did start devolving, but um, it, and it led to his demise, but he was so controlled that to this day they don't know where all his victims are because he wouldn't tell them. So his first known victim that led to his downfall is Samantha Koenig, gorgeous girl, gorgeous. And she worked, as you can see from her picture, she worked at this little coffee shop right here uh, called Common Grounds up in Alaska. And it's one of those, like, you know, I don't know what they call them. It's like a little coffee stand. Kiosk, sort of. Yeah. So it's like a little storage unit, it looks like, you know, with a drive-up window. Uh, My daughter-in-law, Chrissy, worked at one of those in Clovis. Uh, 
And it was when her and Kent first married. And I told her, I said, you're not working at dark, at night, are you? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, so what's your closing process? Do you have Kent come up there with, you know, like I just, the idea of her being in that with nowhere to go, nowhere to run, even in Clovis, which we don't have, you know, tons of crime, made me nervous. And so this is in Anchorage, Alaska. And I think what sometimes of the year it's like dark all the time. And then sometimes of the year it's light all the time. So she was a young girl, um, absolutely gorgeous with her brown hair and big brown eyes, beautiful smile. And she was friendly. She loved being around people and she loved that job. Uh, her bubbly personality created a lot of loyal customers. They loved going to her. And she'd only been working there a month and her dad wasn't excited about it at all. And I tried to find audio or video of her dad. I couldn't find any, but um, he did not want her working there because of the safety factor. And Anchorage is a big city in Alaska, but Alaska is like a, what, the last frontier? I mean, have y'all been to Alaska? Uh, I have, yeah. They don't have a lot of crime. Okay. I've seen all the shows about Alaska. Those are exciting. Yeah. People are friendly. But kind of rough, too, aren't it they? Is, like yeah. They are like, you know, the they, they have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and then he found out, you know, that she would be working at night alone sometimes and uh, didn't like that. But Samantha said, well, there's cameras, you know, so that will help. Plus, you don't think it's going to happen. Right. And there's also like a panic button so she could hit it. But the thing is, like we discussed on one of the outlines, you never know what you're going to do. In those situations, you know, you may get a bad feeling. Well, with her, it's like just another customer that pulled up to the window. And I'll show his picture later. He looks very normal. But anyway, so coffee stands like that are like little storage sheds. And there's barely enough room for one employee. Uh, and so they can either walk up to the window, a customer, or they can drive up to a window and order coffee. So this one was eight feet in length and a little more um, in width and nowhere to go there's nowhere to go you're trapped yeah i will say the window is kind of down low maybe you could hop out the window but you wouldn't think about that and we no. give you much time because that looks like that wow door by the time you had time he could be in and grab you anyway yeah so just to let you know that loud that loud knock there was the recording device going down, but that's okay. Yeah, so you're right, the door's right there. And what makes me nervous about the window being that low is someone could hop in. Yeah, true. And uh, yeah, so this this is actually the picture of it after she disappeared. So this that's when they took the picture for the crime scene. Um, so uh, to me, she's trapped and yeah. I don't know what, and she's young. I think as a young teenager, you don't know what you would do. And uh, so on February 1st, 2012, she was working a late shift. So it was about 8 p.m. She didn't own a car, but her boyfriend would usually come and pick her up. So um, she would text him, hey, I'm almost done. So he'd come get her. But when he went to pick her up, she wasn't there. And the lights were off. So the drive-through window was open. Lights are off though, no Samantha. Was the door locked, I wonder? I don't know. I don't know if it was. The door was open. I mean, the window was open. The window was open. I know the door was shut. I mean, but to get I don't her know out. if it was locked. Yeah. So, 
Um, family and friends knew, is one of those situations where they knew instantly something was wrong. She was a very dependable young girl. There's no way she would have just walked away from the coffee grounds or common grounds without a reason. And her bosses knew that too. And so, and she loved that job. So her boyfriend immediately went over to her father's house and he was worried. You know, obviously his girlfriend's not there. Um, he was on edge. And um, then a weird thing happened. Samantha texted him and the owner of the coffee stand letting them know she'd had a bad day and she's leaving town for the weekend. Which is probably unusual for her. Mm -hmm. Especially just leaving it unlocked and especially not grabbing clothes, you know, things like that. That wasn't Samantha. So no matter how bad the day, she's just not going to do that. And so um, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Okay, this is weird. That doesn't sound like Samantha. And then the boyfriend heard a noise. And so he goes outside. Or well, first he looks at the door and he sees a man by his truck. And so he yelled out asking, what are you doing? And then he ran back in to get help, you know, because he's at Samantha's dad's house. And when both of them came back out, the man's gone. So now you got a missing 16 year old from her job, a weird text message that she's just leaving town and then someone is breaking into his truck. And if they had their information, they'd know where they live. Mm -hmm. She lived. Mm -hmm. And so they, or if the guy has her, then they would know where right. the boyfriend might go. And so it's weird. It's a weird situation and, um, and no one knows what's going on. And, uh, you know, they, they've not had a lot of crime or anything like that. And they tried to get the um, police involved, but the police were like, well, she said she's going out of town. So, again, it was one of those situations where they're like, no, this is not her. And so I get frustrated when I read stuff like this, but then I also try to remember, well, they, you know, have other crimes. They, you know, it's a teenager. Teenagers do weird things like that. But Maybe that's what happened. To She's me, a minor, so I don't see why they wouldn't. There should have been an escalation right there. Right. But I think because she's 16, I think it's a little bit different. Like, once they get into teenage years, they're like, well, did she run away? Did she have a fight? Blah, blah. When they're like a little kid, like 13 and under, it's like all hands on deck. Right. So, um, now on February 19th, so she disappeared February 1st. 18 days later, they um, received a photograph of her with a recent newspaper and a ransom note for $30,000 that was to be deposited in her account if they wanted to see her alive again. Now, I can't imagine how they felt, um, but they're like, she's alive. You know, so they, and, the, and they were a working class family. They didn't have $30,000 to put in her account, but they made it happen. And so Samantha's father, James Koenig, deposited the reward money that people generously donated in town to get her back. But he never saw his daughter again. So And the money disappeared. Mm-hmm. And here's yeah. here's a picture of her her picture and the um you know he, he newspaper. He used date. a newspaper with the date to prove <laughs> that she was alive. She looks. Is that she looks bruised, or mm -hmm. is it just a bad picture? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you can tell the bruising around her neck, her mouth, and her eyes. How terrified she must have been. Okay, 
So we're going to jump actually to the arrest of the person and then we're going to backtrack to what happened to, to her uh, because I want I don't want to get too deep into um, what happened with her right now. So in early March, Samantha's card, uh, debit card, was used in Wilcox, Arizona. So the crime happens in Anchorage. Now it's being used in Wilcox to withdraw $400. Then 90 minutes later, more was withdrawn in Lordsburg, New Mexico. And so I know where that's at. That's not very far away. And then two days later on March 9th, uh, more money was taken from an ATM in Humble City, Texas. So where's Humble City? How far? Because we're here in Texas. So how so far is it from Humble's you guys? up towards Houston, isn't it? I think so. I think it's up towards south. Houston, south. Yeah, so it's not Gosh. it's not used in Anchorage, but it's used in Arizona, New Mexico, and then Texas. So it's like, okay, did he fly into New Mexico? Um, like, you know, why not all the way down from Alaska to the continental? So it's over by Houston. Houston. Well, if he flew, she wasn't with him. But he could drive. That's true. From Arizona. So maybe he didn't I mean, use uh, his Anchorage. debit card until Arizona. I don't know. So, yeah. And at this point, all the authorities had was a security camera um, recordings of a man wearing a disguise. And it looked like he had a fake beard mustache along with sunglasses. And he's wearing gloves, a beanie, and a hoodie with the hood pulled up. And then one of the images, and I may have it. Let me see if I do. He's driving a Ford Focus. And... Let me see if I've got that here, because I thought I did. And where was it taken at, the car picture? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've got it. Yeah, I don't. So, um, yeah, in the background, he had um, the Ford Focus, and I think this one was taken. Let me see. Um yeah, so it was a Humble City. So at the ATM withdrawal in Humble City, Texas, they see the Ford Focus and they alerted all tech, the FBI alerted all Texas law enforcement uh, to be on the lookout for a Ford Focus. But here's what's crazy. So when they saw the first Ford Focus rental car, um, they found out later that the uh, killer had mechanical problems with it and he got another rental car. He returned it to the agency and exchanged it for another vehicle. And they gave him another white Ford Focus. Oh. Yeah. So, okay. I believe in divine intervention. Right. And to me, that's like... That was... There's no such thing as chance happenings and coincidences in the Bible. And so, for him to be given another Ford Focus... Like, I mean, you could be like, well, why doesn't that happen in other cases? Well, how do you know it doesn't? How do you know there's not divine intervention in other cases? But were people praying too? You know, people think, well, God can do whatever he wants. No, he has to have prayer. That's how he set it up. So it's like, okay, are people praying for her? And then these circumstances just start happening. I remember um, watching a, a true crime story years and years ago, and I think it was in North Carolina. And what intrigued me about it, and I wish I could remember the story, but this man was in church. And he just kept having this feeling he needed to leave church immediately 
and drive down a specific highway. And he's like, this is weird. Like, you know, but it was like one of those unctions. It just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You need to leave right now and you need to drive down this highway really slow. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So he quietly leaves. He gets in his pickup and he's driving down this highway and he's looking on the side and he comes across the body of a victim. And the timing of him coming across her body was so soon that they were able to catch the killer immediately. But if he would have waited, evidence would have maybe been washed away. Right. You know what I mean? So I don't know like why some crimes, certain things happen and others don't. But I do believe in the power of prayer. And so it just makes you wonder if there is something, someone just really praying for this young lady's, you know, to be recovered or the killer to be caught. From him to come from Anchorage to Arizona, Arizona New Mexico, and Houston, that, that's a long way to hold somebody. Mm-hmm. But to me, and that's a big him. mistake, too, using her ATM. That's Absolutely. like Criminal 101, according to the shows. Right. <laughs> but he yeah. did have the disguise. So they wouldn't have been able to tell who he was because he was disguised. But having the car in the background right. was the mistake. You know, so maybe he didn't understand how rental cars work and that you can be like, okay, obviously he's driving a white Ford Focus. So now we're just going to go, you know, where Arizona, right? That's where he first used the ATM. Did he rent the car there? Then they're going to, you know, so there's, he definitely made a mistake on the Ford Focus. The disguise, I don't think he, they would have been able to figure out who he was. I, I seen it and I thought I saved the picture. Obviously I didn't. Okay. Love, Texas. Right? Yeah, see if you can find it. That'd be great. So, um, Israel Keys ATM probably will bring him up. Okay, so now they're on the lookout. On March 13th, Texas Highway Patrol Corporal Brian Henry. Yeah. tough, yeah. Yeah, it'd be hard. But see the Ford Focus in the background? No, that's him turning away. Okay, so oh. there, there's one where you can see the car. But, yeah, I don't think I would be able to. Now, no. he does have some distinct fi- features, but I don't think I'd be able to identify him. But if it was someone size. you knew, you might Maybe. would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell somebody but that you know. But then the crime occurred in, uh, you know, Anchorage. I'm not sure if I was in Arizona, I'd recognize him. Right, that's true, too. Yeah, so... All right, so Brian Henry spotted the Ford Focus in a motel at a motel in Lufkin, Texas. Mm-hmm. So how how is that? Is that east or is that still uh, south? No, it's not south. It's east, I think. So now he he's still going east, is but it? he's come up a little bit from the Houston area, right? It's strange though, from out of from uh, New Mexico, Arizona, how he ended up in Houston. And when I come Fort Worth, Dallas. Right. Then you have to go up go that up. far. Well, he obviously has a destination, I'm thinking. Like, he's going oh, yeah. somewhere. Or knows somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they find him in Lufkin, Texas. Uh, well, they find the car. So they park and watch. The driver left the hotel. East. And Officer Henry followed him, just wanting, waiting for him to break the law so he could pull him over. Because, you know, if he pulls him over without him breaking the law, then he's going to know the gig is up. So he wants him to have some type of traffic violation so maybe he won't suspect that they're on to him, is what right. I'm thinking. That's Because I would possible. think that you would have probable cause. Or, you know, but you don't want to alert him because is he armed? Mm. 
you know? So I don't know if that's what they're thinking, but to me that was smart because when I first read that, I'm like, why the heck do you need them to break the law? Just pull them over. But then I started thinking, ooh, if they pull them over for no reason though, he might just pull out a gun and start shooting. But mm-hmm. if he knows he just ran a stop sign or he didn't use his blinker, then he's not going to be as alert. Okay. So, um, sure enough, he starts speeding. So, Officer Henry pulls him over. And when the driver handed over an Alaskan driver's license, Officer Henry called for backup. Because he knows the driver might be the one the FBI was looking for. I love Texas. I know. I'm surprised he didn't run faster. Mm -hmm. Because if I did something like that and a policeman was behind me. Oh, yeah. I know he would know. I'd just go as fast as I could. But one thing, though, is we're (laughs) thinking how we would think, and we're not killers. Right. And killers are very... What's the word? Egotistical. Egotistical. Arrogant. Yep. Confident. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So he calls for backup. He knew the driver might be the one that FBI, almost said FBI, (laughs) were looking for. And so the driver looked like the photos, too, um, of the man using the, the ATM card. And so it gave him probable cause to search the car. So he still had the fake beard Mm -hmm. and mustache? Yeah. And they're wanting to... Uh, well, I don't know if he had it on when he was driving. You know, he definitely put it on when he was using the ATM card. Because he said it looked like him. But it so. looked like him. And again, you can see in the picture that he has certain features. Well, you will see when I show right. you the picture of the, the man that they arrested. But at this point, they're like, does he have Samantha? You know, so they're want, they're wanting to get in there. They didn't find her. But what they did find was dye-stained rolls of money from a bank robbery he committed in Azle, Texas. Oh, that's not yeah. far. Oh, he wow. went a long way. That's what I can't figure Into out. Because you used to live in Azel. Yeah. And so when I read Azel, I'm like, oh, what? You know, and it Maybe was it's a small town. And it was 2012. And the bank's name was the National Bank of Texas. I'm almost positive that's right off of 199 by a Dairy Queen. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So. They arrested him. Uh, he was escorted back to Anchorage, but his name is um, Israel Keys. Now, so he robs the bank in your home, your hometown. Uh, not anymore, but right. and then he also burglarized and he burned down a house in Alito. Oh, that's the um, where you come from yeah. the highway back roads. Wow. Yeah, and that was in mid February two thousand twelve. I couldn't find a picture. Why did he burn it? Did that was it a robbery or a I don't know. I just know me and you, Elena, have driven to Alito to have coffee. Remember, mm-hmm. we had coffee that time. And, uh, yeah, and he just... wonder what the purpose was. I don't know. No. So if there you were can... no deaths recorded there? No. No. So I, he burglarized it. I'm thinking he probably burned it down in case he left any evidence. But if you see mid-February 2012, a house burning in Alito, if you find it on your phone, let me know. Yeah. Oh. Wow. There it That's is. That's a picture from April. And they called it Alto. But it was really Alito. Alito. Because Alto is actually in Oklahoma. There's an Alto, Oklahoma. I've been there. Um, but yeah, so here it is. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's trying to burn down the house in case he left any hair 
Um, I think he wore gloves, so I don't see him leaving fingerprints, but isn't that crazy? So it's like, here you have, you know, a murder in Alaska, and then all of a sudden, you know, obviously you guys don't live in those areas anymore, you know, just for safety factors. We want people to know where we live, but right. it's like, you guys don't live there anymore, but yet it's such a small world that here you have the scariest serial killer I've ever studied in two places where me and you have been, where you used to live. I mean, it's to me, it's crazy. I wonder if he's been here before, or lived here, or knows people. He has not lived here before. Really? Mm -mm. Hmm. No. That's random. Just to go, th yeah. <laughs> so I want to play um, an audio of um, him. Oh, I thought I had it already pulled up. Okay. So he was extremely meticulous. <clears throat> And that's what makes him scary to me. Well, um, he wasn't very much with the car and leaving the bank money in there like that. Well, he also was arrogant, and that's usually right. their downfall. Right. Um, but let me um, play this. He was very meticulous. Very, His crimes were very well thought out. There was nothing that was spur of the moment or, um, you know, just kind of went out one day and decided to do something. Everything was meticulously planned. And... Our interviews with him were the same from his standpoint. I mean, he, I don't, I never got the sense that he, you know, accidentally told us something or got angry and riled up and then something flew out of his mouth. He, my sense was that he knew every time he came in kind of what he was going to give us that day. Yeah. Wow. He controlled every interview. They were never able to get him to slip up. Wow. Smart. Okay. So, the criminal. I want to talk about him a little bit. Um, so, Israel Keyes did not like being called a serial killer. Oh. Although he admitted that he admired Ted Bundy, but he wanted it clear that he did not copy Bundy. That's why he didn't want to be called a serial killer? So, what does that tell you about him? Like, I'm just curious. When you hear that statement. That he's arrogant, one. Very egotistical, wants to be set apart, better than maybe. Thinks he's smarter than anybody else. Okay, so with our knowledge of personalities, let's flip it. Because we don't have a personality to say, hey, this would make you susceptible to him. Because as you'll find out, no one was safe from him. But what personality do you think he is? No way he's an S. Mm -mm. No, he's not, not an D. S. Mm-mm. C. C. C? Yep. I think he was actually a CD. Which is? So a C with very uh, analytical, logical, meticulous, private, every detail, every single detail will be planned out um, and to an extreme. Now, you're an enigma. So you're different, <laughs> Elena, because you have uh, some D that will come up too. So you're a CSD. He's, uh, I think he was a CD. So he has a C. Then the D is they don't trust anybody. Um, very controlled. He had like double control, double task focus, double the need to not make any mistakes. And um, I know as a D. So let's just go back a little bit in my history. So, you know, I'm the one that's already admitted that I plotted someone's murder a whole summer, but I didn't do it. And I, you know, became a Christian. And so I did not murder anybody. Um, I very easily could have been. Oh, and then last night, we're watching Richard Ramirez. Mike, you quiet Mike, my husband, sitting over there talking or looking on his phone. He goes, you know, 
If I didn't meet Jesus, I think I could have been a serial killer. Just out of the blue? Out of the blue, as serious as possible. We just looked at him. So I said, yeah, I bet you could have, actually. You know, and so I'm like, then I started thinking later, wow. And I'm watching him while he's sleeping. <laughs> but, um, but, so, but he likes to pull on your legs. So yeah. I'm not sure what he was doing there. In this podcast, I want to highlight again a great resource for crime victims called VictimConnect.org. They have uh, help available in both English and Spanish. And Victim Connect is a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A program at the National Center for Victims of crime, it combines a tra- traditional telephone-based helpline, 855-4-VICTIM, an innovative online chat, chat.victimconnect.org, and a web-based information and service referral, victimconnect.org. And so there's specialized training uh, where there are you know, victim assistance specialists that help discuss concerns and questions, uh, understand your rights and options, find information and connect you with resources, craft next steps to help you regain control uh, in your life and access referrals. Now, they serve sexual assault victims, assault attempted homicide victims, domestic dating violence victims and or protective order violations, homicide, financial crimes like identity theft, fraud, and or exploitation, hate crimes, human trafficking, both labor and sex trafficking, stalking, mass events, elder abuse or neglect, child abuse, whether physical, sexual, and or neglect. So you can access these resources Monday through Friday using the hotline, but their content is always available at their website. So again, victimconnect.org. When I, as a teenager, and I got really mad at a specific stepmom, and I'm not going to say who she is, I don't want to dishonor her, um, but she ticked me off so much that at the age of 13, 14, 15, I made it my mission to make her go insane. Oh, my. No joke. So, because I, at that point, hated her guts for all the right. things that I felt she had done to me. So, I'm like, okay, I my purpose now in life, other than getting good grades because I have a future, is what? I'm going to make her life miserable. And so, I'd play mind games with her. And um, I would act like I was sorry and you're right. And I would, you know... I repent and blah, blah. And the whole time I'm doing it, it's a game. And I would walk away laughing on the inside like she was so stupid. She actually believed me. And then I would immediately go right into tormenting her again. Well, at this point, oh, yeah, and that's a D. You birthed her. The thing with a D personality is, and I'm a DC, so if you if you keep hurting a D or if you keep doing injustice and hypocrisy with a D, they a switch will turn on of you're now an enemy and I'm gonna make your life miserable. And so that's what happened. There was so much hypocrisy. Don't do drugs while she's token it up. Uh, you know, don't don't sleep around while she's sleeping with some of my high school friends. I mean, there was just so many things going on that I'm like, all right, you're now my enemy, number one, and I'm gonna make your life miserable. So at this point, dad's getting it arranged for me to move from there and you know live with him so the um, last day she lived we actually lived with my step-grandmother who i absolutely loved and the last day um what is this oh uh sure the last day that we lived 
Okay, so my sister is wanting to do a Starbucks order in the middle of a true crime podcast. Um, I had her mumbling to herself, walking around crazy. Really? Mm -hmm. That was your end goal and you mm -hmm. achieved it? I achieved it. So D's are like that. Mm -hmm. I was happy. I had absolutely no compassion. I had absolutely no sympathy for her whatsoever. So then I moved to Clovis and I'm fine. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't do drugs. I get born again. Um, so, you know, when I do mentoring and I have a sweet S that's dealing with a D child, that comes in handy. And I remember one lady, she was just going over the top being kind to her, her D daughter. And I said, you need to stop. She was an S. And she goes, why? I said, because you're just feeding into her. Um, she doesn't care that you get her coffee. She doesn't care that you go and put warm water on her cold windshield so the ice is gone. She thinks it's funny and she's winning. That she can control her. Yeah. Because it's a type it's of a control. Game. Yeah. yeah. And so she goes, are you serious? I said, I am dead serious. I know exactly what she's doing because I'm a D. I've done it. But then if you stop, what happens? So I told her, I said, stop. And she goes, well, I mean, will it cause a war? And I said, no, she'll start losing control and then you're going to see some change. And she did exactly what I said, and they have one of the best relationships they've ever had. Really? Yes. So if this guy is a CD, so you've already got the analytical, logical, meticulous, then you have the D where I doubt he uh, ever felt any remorse whatsoever. Ever? Ever. Yeah. So on top of that, a D doesn't like words put in their mouth, thoughts put, put in their head, they don't want to be like anybody else. They're who they are. They, you know, so when he said he admired Ted Bundy, but he didn't copy him, you're absolutely right, Elena. He wanted to be set apart as a serial killer. I'm not like anybody else you've ever dealt with. So he would know and not like a script from the police exactly. that they do. Because he'd know what they do. And, and he probably would control him. every aspect yeah. of the conversation. Wow. Mm -hmm. So this is a guy with no conscience. Okay, so his ideas were his own. Now, you guys know I'm fascinated with Ted Bundy because of how normal he was. Um, I think Israel Keys pulled off being normal more than anybody else. Really? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, nobody, nobody at all ever suspected he was a killer. And with Ted Bundy, we had Ann Rule, Elizabeth Kendall. I mean, they, they suspected, uh, but no one suspected Israel Keys was. Did he have but friends? I was about to say, did people know him, have yeah. relationships with and him? They're, and they all said, nice guy. Mm -hmm. No, really. They were shocked. In fact, where he lived was the upscale part of uh, Anchorage, Alaska, because he owned a construction business, which um, I do have some uh, pictures of that. So this is uh, him working in Anchorage. And just a normal, fun guy. They would have neighborhood parties him and his girlfriend would host. Uh, but the street he lived on was where judges, lawyers, wow. people like that lived. And that's him when he was caught in Texas. You know, having a construction company, you would think he could just have the pick of his victims. Right. And, and I thought I had a picture. Okay, so this was his neighborhood. So he owned uh, Keys Construction in um, Anchorage, and that's his house. And like I said, it was like a cul-de-sac, I believe. Mm -hmm. And wealthy people lived there, you know, professional people lived there, which he would have wanted to live at. And we'll get to his, um, his history, but this is him at one of the parties. 
Yeah. Looks normal. But what does that mean, though? That's what we're hearing about Ted Bundy, too. What looks normal? What right. do you expect to see in a serial killer? True. A I monster. think people expect to see an unkept... Overweight. Overweight. Like, like, like Gacy. Yeah. Gacy would be one. Richard Ramirez. And they're... To me, they like... Well, Gacy actually got... He was... Um, with Gacy, he was well-kept. Um, he... Um, was schmoozing with political people and stuff. So actually, later he got gross looking to me. And but um, I think Richard Ramirez is what people would think of. Just a monster, Dahmer. yeah. Just people that you're, and I hate to say it, but you're naturally repulsed. Where they just have this feel and this look right. about them. What fascinated me about watching about Richard Ramirez last night was people said evil just came off of him. They like, if you were it. in the room, you could feel it. But we know why. We know why. Yeah, he yeah. worships Lawyers, Satan. Yeah. newspapers. Demons. Yeah. Things like that. So, um, I, Otis Tool mm-hmm. and the guy he used to, I can't remember his name, that he used to kill people with, which, by the way, they killed a prostitute in Odessa, Texas, not long before we moved there. Her oh. body was found down the street from our house. But um, I think we pictured those people. And then when you have someone this normal, it's just hard to yeah, imagine. Yeah, normal. Like a neighbor. Okay, now, he said being two people was part of the game. Um, let me let me play this for you. Now, there is no one. Who knows oh, no, I already played this one at the beginning. Them? Okay, so I thought I had. I couldn't remember if I had. So he said that being two people was part of the game, and he loved it, he told them. And he did say that he came to terms with um, who he was, so that's what I want to play. So he truly was two people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Okay. He said that it was in his kind of early 20s, mid-20s, that he really came to terms with who he was, uh, recognizing that he was different from other people and that he had these urges and that there wasn't, you know, he tried to initially blame it on, you know, Satan and religious things and, and why he was like this and a number of different things. And then he ultimately realized that that's just who he was and he accepted that. And I think that as he began to do that, it became easier for him to do. Um, he enjoyed, he talked about enjoying the fact that he was two different people and really being able to play that off um, with people and that people had absolutely no idea what he was doing. He even referenced times where he would be at his job when he was living in Washington and people would talk about criminals and how stupid they were and how they did this to get caught or that to get caught and how he enjoyed those kind of conversations because people had no clue what he was doing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Crazy. So that was part of his game. Now, they arrested him, and at first he refused to talk. Now, at this point, they don't know he's a serial killer. They're just arresting him on the suspicion that he kidnapped Samantha. They don't even know what happened with her. So they have no idea the other murders. And um, he refused to talk to investigators until March 31st. So they arrest him on the 8th. He knew they had him for Samantha's death. So at this point... He's like, okay, I killed her, you know. So he agreed to talk to him on two conditions. They had to keep the details, including his name, from the press. And he wanted a speedy trial and the death penalty immediately. Why did he want his name from the press? Because it eventually would be in the press. Well, does that make sense? And, and to me, I'm like, do you not know how that works? Like, first of all, yeah, you can get a speedy trial, which is about two years. But you don't just get the death penalty. There's appeals. So the only way you... 
actually, I think you have to have your pills even if it, if you say you don't want them. Oh, they're automatic. I think. Yeah, they're automatic. I think Is they're it, automatic in some states. And I right? think it's. I think it's federal. Aren't it death penalty be. rules federal? I'm not sure. Oh, you're right. They are. Because I think yeah. like some states can say we don't want the death penalty. Some can say we want it. But right. I think the process is uniform for each state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm not sure because like in Texas, you guys, I mean, yeah. they're put to death pretty quick. But you have to have the pills. Yeah, you have to have the pills. I wonder if his personality, maybe it bothered him. People would think bad of him. Well, he had friends and neighbors in Anchorage, as well as a list of happy clients from his construction business, and he said he needed to get used to the idea that now these people would know who he really was. That's the C in him. And it's the the ego. ego, where it's like, oh, so you need to get used to the idea that you're a freak in their eyes, yet what about the family of the lady you murdered? You or the I mean? murdered victims. Yeah, it's just like, you suck. <laughs> just, right? I'm like, you know, screw wow. you. I'm going to get your name. But they had, to, they had to play his game because now they're starting to think, wait a minute, we got more going on here. There's more going on in this situation. Plus, he was worried about his young daughter. Oh, he had a daughter. And he didn't want her to type in her dad's name and all the crimes pop up when she grew up. Do they know about the mother? A little bit. Was it... He abusive, I wonder. We'll get to it. We'll get oh. to it. Okay, so the first question they had is, is Samantha alive or dead? And dead, he said. But he wasn't quite ready to share all the details of the murder. He promised to tell them everything they wanted to know, blow by blow, if he wanted. That's a quote. Jeez. He even said, I have a lot, lot more stories to tell. And it's at that point investigators knew they were talking to serial killers. Now, was he in Texas or Alaska or a serial at this point? Um, I think he's in Alaska. And the detective, I, I've got her name in my notes, but I want to go back to this picture. Okay, so here's the murder. Here's what he did to finish off um, part one. Keyes had decided to rob the Common Grounds coffee stand after scouting out other coffee scans in Askridge, Alaska. So... They have more coffee shops per capita than anywhere in America, which I can understand. I mean, it's right, cold. it's so cold, yeah. So he had scouted out a lot of places before that night uh, in February 1st, 2012, but because of its location and it was open later than other coffee scan, uh, stands, he decided to go ahead and rob it. And he said he wasn't going to take Samantha at first, but when he got there, he couldn't resist. Oh, boy. And he'd never met her or seen her before. So that's what I mean by devolve. Yeah. So now he's losing the ability to control the urge to hurt people. Harm somebody, yeah. So he said that he approached the coffee stand at 7.55 p.m., so five minutes toward closing, wearing a ski mask, which wasn't that unusual in the middle of winter in Alaska, so it wouldn't have alerted her that there was danger. He ordered the Americano. Yeah. His favorite, he also likes Snickers bars. He ordered his favorite Americana, uh, Americano, and Samantha made the coffee. She handed it to him. Then he pulled his gun and he demanded money. Now, remember, Samantha told her dad there was a panic button, but she didn't use it. So she was probably so scared that she forgot about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So he climbed through the window that's so low, climbed through the window after demanding that Samantha turn off the lights inside because of the cameras. Oh. 
So he tied up her hands with zip ties and he asked her where her car was and she told him, I don't have a car. And so he walked her out of the coffee stand at gunpoint to his vehicle, which he had prepared beforehand by removing the license plate and his toolboxes. So he was prepared. Oh yeah. But not every, to take her. Until yeah, that he moment. didn't plan to take her. Yeah, until he saw. Well, her. construction, they probably carry zip ties and. Oh yeah, he would have had all yeah, that. Yeah, he would but have he did all of it. Remove his toolboxes. I mean, just for a burglary, he removed anything that would be able to tie him to it, and then he decided to take her. She tried to break away and run, but he chased her down, tackled her to the ground, and explained that he'd kill her if she did anything like that again. He then drove around town uh, telling Samantha that he'd kidnapped her for ransom. So she let him know that her family didn't have a lot of money. and um, But he said, well, the public will help the family raise the money. Wow. Oh, he knew. Uh-huh. Um, which did happen. He then promised to return her to her family. If she cooperated, she believed him. And then she also tried to talk him into letting her go. The thing is, is that there is a pattern when people are kidnapped like that, where they say, if you just do what I say, I'll release you. And so it kind of gives them a sense of relief a little bit. Like, okay, I'll just do what they want. And hope. And they, they all use that, and then they kill them. You know, they kill them. So um, in the meantime, he realized he didn't have her cell phone. It, she left it at the common grounds. So he drove back and got her cell phone. Why? Because he wanted to text and buy himself some time. Mm. Yeah. So she's tied up in his truck, and he goes and gets her, her phone. He then drove to another part of town and he sent the two text messages that her boyfriend, one to her boyfriend, one to her boss, but he wanted her debit card. But she shared her account with her boyfriend and she didn't have her debit card. It was in his truck. Oh, that's why it was at the truck. Yeah. So the man that the boyfriend saw, this is what's sad. Yeah, so close. Yeah, so he's at the truck, he hears it, he goes out there, he runs back in for help, which I understand, he was a teenager too, you know, and so he wants to get the dad. I mean, you trust your dads to protect you, to help you, to take care of you, and even though it wasn't his dad, it was Samantha's, but by the time, so she was literally in the pickup when he pulled up and got the debit card out of the pickup. So he did get it out of the pickup, yeah. So she told him where the house was, gave him the pin number. He then put her in the shed in front of his house, bound her, turned up the radio so no one would hear her. And then he drove uh, to her house. Oh, no, he drove to her house and got the card out. So she was already in the shed. So she told him the address, she's in his shed. He goes to the her house and gets the card from her boyfriend's truck. Okay. He then drove to the ATM to test the PIN number and returned to the shed, and it worked. That's smart. He sipped his wine while raping her as she cried. So he would rape her, drink some wine, rape her, drink some wine. I bet he said it so proud. So then he strangled her to death, wrapped her body in a tarp. Oh, right off the bat? mm Mm-hmm. You're looking at a dead girl. Okay. I was wondering about the eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, she's, she's dead, dead in, in that picture. picture? Mm-hmm. Oh, that explains why he's holding the newspaper. Mm-hmm. He sewed her eyelids open. So, um, he put her body in a cabinet in the shed, went back into his house, packed for a cruise that he had booked weeks ago to 
uh, from New Orleans, woke his daughter for school the next morning, then grabbed a, a called for a cab to the airport. Uh, it was then uh, when he returned from the cruise that he burglar burglarized and burned down the house in Alito and then robbed the bank in Azle. He so, went on a vacation? Oh, because he was in um, uh, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Oh, sense, from the cruise. Houston, East Texas, okay. Where was his daughter? His daughter and Through his long-term girlfriend were inside the house while he was in the shed raping and killing her. Ugh. So, on February 19th, he returned home. He removed Samantha's now frozen body from the cabinet, had sex with her frozen corpse. A few days later, he applied makeup to her face to make her look like she was alive. He sewed her eyes open, braided her hair, took a photo of her with a recent newspaper to include with the ransom note for $30,000. A few days later, he cut up her body and dumped her remains in Matanuska Lake near Anchorage. Wow, that is a very precise, well thought out. And I think plan. I have a long process. Yes. A picture Patient. of the lake. Let me see if this is it. Oh no, here it is. So they found her. They um, went directly to where he said she would be and found her in the middle of Alaska in the winter. You know, now they're like at the point of, okay, we need to figure out who this guy is, what has he been up to, you know, what's his background, because obviously he has more stories to tell. And uh, so, um, investigators found some information on his computer about a missing Vermont couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier. When they confronted him about it, he smiled and told them they were lucky because he had planned to throw the computer away once he got back to Anchorage. He knew they had him on this one, but he told them that he'd only tell them about the murders if they scheduled his execution date within a year. So again, it's like he's so smart in how he commits murders, yet he can't understand. That's not how it works. We're not the Wild mm -hmm. West where we just take you out behind the jail and shoot right. you dead. You hang know, I mean, you. or hang you. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you know, in this country, you got to have a trial, at least plead guilty. You're sentenced. And uh, so uh, they, you know, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And kept pressuring him. And finally, he told them where he left the bodies. Now, this is scary. And this is why I saved Israel Keys for last, because there was no protection from this guy. When the prosecutor asked him, how did you know and why did you select the couriers? He seemed to be annoyed because he felt it was a stupid question. He said, I didn't know him, it was just random. And, and remember like Richard Ramirez, it was random. I mean, he killed anywhere from what, toddlers to a 79 year old. And they're the most dangerous because there's no type. Like Bundy had a type. Yeah, he had a type. Yeah, there's no type, they're just random. And so, you know, we've dissected these you know crimes this entire season of personalities, trusting your gut, stop being nice, you know, some armchair psychology to maybe help other people be smarter in the relationships, take care of themselves. But with Israel Keys, none of that would have worked. And he looks so normal again. Yeah. So that's part one. We'll get into part two with the Vermont uh, murders in the next episode. So, I mean, what do y'all think so far? It's fascinating. I didn't remember this case. And I watch a lot. I don't remember him. 
Mm-hmm. He was so well planned. I mean, she said that he had um, money and items to help him with these mm-hmm. um, crimes, not just murder. Yeah. And All different. over. Yeah. And we're going to get more into that. In fact, I probably should have left that video for the end. But they they are, if you go to FBI.gov, they are looking for more information because they know there were probably 13 people. And, and we'll get into that. But um, they they he wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't give it up. So, um, and I think that's one reason I wanted to do this too. Not just because like, hey, you know, there are some things where you're not going to have that information to help you. But also the fact that, um, Dusty's doing a good job <laughs> bringing like, us some Americanos, like Israel Keys, like to drink. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway, it, they need help. They want to find his victims. And I'm going to get into one from New York that maybe we can get someone that can say, hey, I might know where she is. So I think that's another reason I want to do this one. Maybe, you know, with podcasts, I mean, like the um, crime uh, squad or the murder squad and first degree uh, crime junkies, they like to focus, those podcasts like to focus on crimes where maybe they can get them solved and they've had some solved. So, all right. So to transition to fun. So obviously we've already talked about our taco night or our tacos, you know, our shirts and all that stuff. We'll post a picture on the Instagram page uh, later, but I figured out how to get, what's your car again? Mercedes. Mercedes. So, I figured out how to get on Sports Plus. Not just Sport. Sport Plus. Wow. So, I don't know if I want to record a potential crime in the future, but I would (laughs) like to get on an open space where I can get it, get it up there. Tow road. Yeah, tow road. Although that's, oh, Oh, I don't know. This weekend, too. It's Labor Day weekend. Lots of state troopers out there. I'll be busy. Might have to wait a few months. Yes. <laughs> you two can go. Yes. I'm not going down with her. <laughs> <laughs> She'll go all the way to 160. Well, that was fun. That was fun. It was fun driving it. But um, So that's been my fun today. What about you guys? Y'all have any? Hovos Rancheros. Yum, yum, yum. Um, huevos Rancheros. <laughs> I thought they were a Hovos. Dusty even asked me this morning before he ordered, is it Hovos or Huevos? Yeah, no, it's Huevos. Yeah. Anyway, I'm from Texas, so it's hobos. <laughs> but I'm originally from Texas. But you're in New Mexico, we call so you are more familiar Wavis? with the language. <laughs> me, not so much. I have my own language, so it doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't eat anything waiting for my tacos. Yes, I had. I didn't bring lunch. I wanted to have a nice, empty stomach. I did have breakfast, though. I, I got you a hot cocoa. Oh, so we got some Starbucks over there, so that'll be fine. Yay. All right, so let's take a quick break, have some of our uh, Starbucks. And so, wait, which one goes first? Elena. Elena. Be smart. Be rude. And don't be a victim. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? <laughs> The main source for this podcast is FBI.gov, Murderpedia.org, and Medium.com, Israel Keys, The Monster Who Moved to Anchorage, article by Robin Bearfield.